the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 2. It's a privilege to bring back to the show Professor Ilan Warman. He is a professor of law at ASU, the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, uh, author of several books, including uh, The Second Founding, An Introduction to the 14th Amendment. He is the author of A Debt Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism. And he's involved in a very important lawsuit here in the Phoenix area. Uh, Professor, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be back. You betcha. You betcha. Um, You and I have known each other in various capacities a long time. I was reading the New York Times this weekend, and uh, a sandwich shop, a tent city, and an American crisis is the headline as homelessness overwhelms downtown Phoenix. A small business wonders how long it can hang on. And I was thinking of you when I read that, and I thought, well, your case made it to the New York Times. What did Lincoln say about the man ridden out of town on a rail? But for the honor of it, maybe we would just assume have passed it up. Tell us what's going on here, Professor. Yeah, so a while back, I mean, this case has been going on since last summer, so unfortunately it's been going on for uh, quite a while and involves what's called the zone, mm-hmm. which your listeners may know about, which yep. is roughly, you know, the area between seventh between Seventh Avenue and Fifteenth Avenue, uh, and you know, Van Buren, Jefferson, something like uh, mm-hmm. about there in the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. And it's basically lined with tents. There are about a thousand people living there, mm-hmm. uh, although it fluctuates. And so, um, my colleagues and I, my two partners, Steve Tully and Mike Bailey, and I represent the homeowners and business owners. Uh, who live in the zone. And what we are claiming is that the homelessness crisis there, the way the city has handled handled it, has created a public nuisance. And the interesting part about this case is there is a Ninth Circuit decision called City of Boise, which you know about and we've Mm -hmm. talked about before, that says you can't enforce camping bans if there are insufficient shelter beds available in the city. And there, of course, aren't sufficient shelter beds uh, available. And we think the city has used this as an excuse. In fact, they've admitted in litigation, they've admitted to using this case as an excuse to cease their enforcing of the campaign bans. But what we claim is that the Ninth Circuit decision does not preempt other state laws like public nuisance laws. In other words, maybe you can't send them to jail merely for having a tent, you know, at night in a particular place, but you don't have to allow them uh, to have tents at all places at any times, wherever and whenever they want. You can't concentrate the population in one particular area. So what we are saying is, look, we don't, we're not questioning the Ninth Circuit decision, okay? Uh, we don't want anybody to go to jail, but what you're doing now isn't working and is violating the law. Therefore, how can you stop violating the law? How can you comply with the public nuisance laws while also complying with the Ninth Circuit decision? Well, gee, you can build structured campgrounds, which cities like Denver and Santa Rosa have done. You could start enforcing Laws against open and illegal drug use, by the way, which would solve 90% of the problem. You can open up services in other parts of the city to distribute the population of it, so it doesn't concentrate in one neighborhood and thereby amount to a public nuisance. There are all sorts of things that could be done. And finally, you know, we've been waiting 
um, a, a long time for a ruling on our preliminary injunction, and we're hoping to have a ruling within the next m- month, um, you know, uh, but, but we filed this application, you know, in, in August. Uh, we had a change of judge, uh, which came a bit late, um, and then we had some other, you know, occurrences, like there was a situation with some dinosaur sculptures going up in downtown. I don't know if you heard about that. No, which the city no, mm-hmm, opposed. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's a whole story that I'm happy to talk about, too, uh, that, that touches this uh, litigation. Um, and so we're just at this point waiting for a ruling. And so this New York Times article really comes at a good time because uh, even the New York Times recognizes that the situation is untenable. Even, you know, why not L.A., why not San Francisco? Because everyone's come to expect this is L.A. and San Francisco. What people don't realize is that this crisis, partly, if not largely because, of, I mean, there are many causes of homelessness, right? But the 10 cities that we're seeing in the West is largely caused by the city's reaction, the cities, multiple cities all across the West Coast, their reactions to the Ninth Circuit decision, misinterpreting the Ninth Circuit decision, where the activists and, in particular, progressives uh, use the Ninth Circuit uh, decision as a cudgel, as a bludgeon. They say, oh, you can't do anything to the unsheltered population because of the Ninth Circuit decision, and the city just sort of acquiesces. That is what has led to the total squalor that they are living in, uh, in these tent cities. And so the New York Times piece, comes at a good time because we are waiting for a ruling in this case. You know, we're waiting for the city to do something. We're waiting for the court to do something. And if even the New York Times thinks, hey, something's up here, you know, maybe uh, that'll light a fire under either the city or the court. And that's what we're hoping to have happen. Uh, Thank you, Professor Werman. Yeah, let me underscore even the New York Times. That's an interesting phrase because I thought it was a pretty good article myself. I mean, we'll always have quibbles. And when you're in the middle of the story, as you are, as one of the chief lawyers, head lawyers in this litigation, uh, you know more about it and you'll see these things. But when they talk about a young woman lying in the middle of the street, just passed out in the middle of the street, or when they talk here in Phoenix, or when they talk about a man weaving down the sidewalk, uh, muttering to himself and urinating in public around outdoor tables. I've seen that. Um, You've seen that. Um, They could have, they, and it's accurate. Um, The only thing that's inaccurate is that they have a young woman and a man, and you can drive down there and see this replicated dozens upon dozens of times in any given hour. I've seen arson. You've probably seen it too. I mean, it is, I've described it as something that looks like a bombed-out area of Darfur, right here in the center of Phoenix, that most legislators, by the way, on their way to the state capitol, drive past or through on the way to work every single day at the state capitol. It is, as as I think the New York Times even said, a literal humanitarian crisis. Am I overstating it? You aren't, and in fact, I think they used humanitarian. I think they did too. Yeah. In quote, yeah. in quotations, because we use that in our brief, right? Because it is a humanitarian. And, and, and to be clear, yes, of course, our clients are the property owners right. and the business owners, and we have their interests at heart. But to be clear, we think our solutions will be better for the unsheltered population than the city's total application. Uh, and so it is a humanitarian crisis, and we think what we're asking for, whether it be structured campgrounds, whether it be enforcing laws against drug use or actually getting them into drug treatment programs, we think that will actually be better. It will actually be better than what the city is doing. And I want to be clear. I want to highlight something which probably happened after we last spoke, because this came out during the litigation. We asked the city 
at trial, on cross-examination, you know, the deputy city manager, why aren't you putting them in structured campgrounds, you know, like Santa Rosa or Denver, where you have tents in in lots, they're six feet away from... This is something you proposed, actually, isn't it? It's something you proposed. Yes, right. Yes, we propose it. We propose it in the lots. Why are they doing that? Why aren't they doing it? They say, well, because it doesn't solve homelessness. Right. That's what they said. It doesn't solve homelessness. But wait a minute, we asked. So they're still on the street right? until you solve homelessness, until you figure that out. Good luck, by the way. Right. Okay? How many thousands of years have we been struggling, you know, with homelessness? I remember okay. in the Reagan administration the issue yeah. of homelessness. Sure. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, right. that's not what this lawsuit is about. Right. Okay? We're not here to litigate the wisdom or idiocy of housing-first homelessness policy. We're not here uh, to litigate the wisdom or idiocy of giving, you know, uh, drug addicts, hotel rooms, and clean needles. That's not what this is about. We are not about solving homelessness. We're about solving this public nuisance, this humanitarian crisis in this particular part of town. And right. to be clear, again, we think it will help the homeless population, the unsheltered population there. But it just insane to us. it's insane to us that they won't engage in intermediate solutions like drug treatment, like structured campgrounds, or distributing services around the city, you know, because it doesn't ultimately solve homelessness. Well, I hate to break it to them. They could spend 50 years on this, and they're not going to solve homelessness, okay? The city's responsibility is to the residents. You know, the city has to ensure public health, public safety, public welfare, and they, at trial, admitted this is a biohazard in the zone. That is their language. You know, their own document uses words like biohazard. Uh, And so that's what this case is about, and to think that they're just ignoring this because it doesn't solve homelessness? Well, their priorities are totally out of whack. I agree with you, Professor. And, you know, I want to come back to that for a moment, too. I, can I, Can you stay another segment? I have to go to break in a moment. Do you have a little time? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Okay, thank you. Because the the notion I also want to implant, and I know it's 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 perhaps adjacent to your lawsuit, but somewhat within it as well, is solving homelessness, one problem, one issue, and yes, we've been at that for a long time, doing nothing has seen nothing but an increase of this problem, and the city does owe something, obviously, a bare minimum of civic responsibility to the residents and the business owners, but I think there's something to be said, too, for the city or just us as human beings owing something to the people that are living in this kind of squalor, and by the way, when we talk about their criminality, understanding i don't think most people do understand this understanding that the greatest victims of the violence that takes place are the fellow chronic homelessness in that area i mean the abuse they go through whether it's sexual or battery or physical we're not just trying to protect so to speak the non-homeless i think we are trying to protect the homeless i have to take a break i wonder if you might address that when we come back dr Ehrman. Worman. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Elon Worman is our guest, professor of law at uh, ASU, the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and author of several books, including A Debt Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, honored to have with us Professor Ilan Werman uh, from the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law over at ASU, author of several books and law review articles. He, along with uh, some other friends and great attorneys of ours, Stephen Tully and Mike Bailey. Michael Bailey are suing the city of Phoenix on behalf of uh, a series of business owners in uh, Phoenix uh, who are um, taking on the effects, the incoming 
uh, in their uh, once uh, safe and reasonable neighborhood uh, because of the chronic uh, homelessness problem that has engulfed what is known as the zone, roughly Ninth Avenue and Jefferson outward. Uh, Ilan's uh, case uh, made it into the New York Times uh, this weekend, a pretty good article on it. Ilan, Professor Werman, one of the things I was thinking about over this is, yes, as we care for, of course, uh, the innocent uh, residents of Phoenix, let's talk for a moment about the protection of those who live in, I don't know if you'd call it this new tent city, but who live in the zone, the chronic homeless population themselves. We are doing them no favors by having these be no patrol and no law enforcement zones. The lion's share, if not the majority of the crime that we talk about that is committed by them is against them. It's uh, it's 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 within that community. It is against these women. There was this awful story of a born alive infant who was, uh, well, I guess, born dead. Uh, left in 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 the zone in January. I mean, the crimes and the battery, whether it's sexual or physical, is um, is something that no sane or civilized society would allow to happen to its own people, and yet we're allowing it to happen in this community against itself too, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And so let me say a few things about that. First, the New York Times story talked about the crime statistics, which I think they got from our litigation. Yeah, one of the exhibits we were that was produced to us was the crime statistics. Yeah which are, you know, like, talk about thousands of calls right. a year. It's like, yep. Can you imagine a thousand calls to police on your street, in your neighborhood, Seth? Could you imagine that? The way you would move, right? Of yep. course it would be a, a public meeting. And most of those crimes are against one another, yep. right? Yep. You, you mentioned the, the infant, yeah, I mean, there are tent fires, right? I mean, tent fires affect tents. It affects the population. I've seen them, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's good. every every other day it feels like, especially in the, when it was winter, and they would light fires in their tents. You know, they would engulf in flames. Uh, you mentioned, and some of it, by the way, is arson for retribution. I saw people lighting each other's, uh, you know, uh, grocery baskets, which is their entire list of possessions on fire for retribution. I've seen that too. It, it would not surprise me. And you you mentioned the infant. Yeah. Just to be clear, I, I don't know that we know whether the twenty four week old infant was born alive. Correct. Or dead. What You're we right. do know You're is right. it was. It was lit on fire, right. okay? It was yep. lit on fire, presumably by the unsheltered individual prematurely gave birth to this, you know, infant. And so these horrific stories are, are, are you know, largely shows the effect on the unsheltered population uh, itself. And again, the biohazard, you know, if it's bad for the plaintiffs, how do you think, you know, it's right. certainly not better for the people in the tent right. um, themselves. And so the question here, and I'm glad you raised this because, you know, I'm a, I consider myself a conservative, and this is not a conservative or progressive or liberal issue. Nope. This is an issue on which multiple people can agree. And you and I have talked about this before. You know, um, the progressives, you know, uh, there's a radical wing of the progressives, not all progressives, but there's a radical wing of the progressives that believes that our childcare people should have the right to be anywhere they want, right. whenever they want, doing whatever they want, giving right. clean needles, you know, things like that. And then there's, you know, there is... Uh, an unholy alliance between them and people on the far right yep. who, A, don't want to spend money yep. uh, on public policy problems like this, even though it's one of the genuine public policy problems, you know, that maybe government should, in fact, have a role in. But put that aside, there are some conservatives who, you know, confuse um, uh, compassion for enabling, right? Libertarianism with to... libertinism, too. Yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. We, we, no one wants to enable, right? Um, but there are things you could do that shows compassion. 
Uh, and that's, you know, so I, I think we have to be, I, I, I would not be surprised if something like 75, 80% of the American public believes that the current so-called solutions or approaches to homelessness policy are not solutions at all, and that has been a total and abject failure. But they're not the ones who are, you know, uh, lobbying the, the representatives. They're not the ones uh, who have the ear of the very conservative members or the very progressive members. Right. And that's what's so unfortunate about this, because as you said, no first world country, right, should have um, these sort of people living in such squalor and yeah. poverty. And again, it's like the market gets it progresses. It, this is very cynical of me. And obviously it's not entirely true. I'm being half facetious here. But part of me wonders if progressives like to perpetuate uh, homeless encampments because it makes capitalism. Yes, no, I I don't think it's facetious at all. I think there is an element that follows the Leninist line that the worse the better, and we saw that in early welfare reform activism in the '60s too, where they tried to blow the system up. But let me add to this too, Professor Worman, if I might, that just to underscore what you're saying and this notion that what you're proposing, what the business owners and local residents in the area are proposing won't solve homelessness because the idea is to get these people in a home. You don't have to say this. You don't even have to agree with it, but I believe it, and I know this, which is if you were to give each and every one of these 1,100 people that we're talking about here a small apartment tomorrow, within a week it would be destroyed or burnt down. Yeah, it. That's I, I have no reason to doubt that. Okay. Right? I'm not okay. a homelessness right. policy right. expert. Yeah, well, I'm right. just saying that you know? the home is not the answer right right now. Right. It may be in a year, but there's right. a few uh, intermediary uh, steps that we need to put these these victims right. of their housing own decisions first, look, to. Look, this housing first policy was tried um, in San Francisco during COVID. It gave everybody you know hotel rooms, uh, you know, and yep. clean needles. Yep. How did that turn out? Right. How did that turn out? So that's evidence in your favor. Well, I'm just, I, I don't yeah. have to be an expert to know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, so once again, you only have a couple minutes left with us. Uh, underscore it for the community that's listening, uh, Professor Werman. Things that could be done as halfway measures or at least measures on the way to solving this problem that you guys have proposed, because I think it's the essence of common sense what you've proposed. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, some things that we're proposing, okay? Number one, if you can't build a permanent shelter, if you can't put them in permanent housing, have a structured campground, okay, right. where there are, you know, it's kept orderly, kept clean, and yes, there's a police presence. You know, I remember reading this story, by the way, this reminds me, where the only thing that the, that the progressives could find to complain about the, our lawsuit was, well, we don't like structured campgrounds right. because it's no better than prison. <laughs> What? What? Are you serious? Oh, it requires some police. Well, yes, it requires some police to make sure that people aren't burning each other's tents down, that people aren't, you know, dumping uh, human waste from their buckets across the fence into a neighboring property. Like, yes, those things require the enforcement of certain laws, right? And so putting them in structured campgrounds were basic, rudimentary quality of life laws and ordinances uh, for public order are maintained would be better not just for the neighborhood, but for the unsheltered people themselves. This is a common sense temporary measure. Measure number two, of course, is drug treatment programs. But we think people should be allowed to use drugs. We think the problem is that, you know, we, the policymakers, you know, we think the problem is that they don't have clean needles and houses in which to inject themselves, right? But that is clearly, I think, 
failed. Again, I'm not an expert in this, but I, I, the I idea of the victimless crime you know? should be long over. Yeah, yeah exactly. should be long exactly. done. Exactly. Um, certainly, if we're all paying for the consequences. Well, that's the other point. Really yeah, for people who want to save money, they ain't gonna be. I mean, there are still social services that are going to increasingly tax the rest of the community. Doctor Elon Worman, Professor Worman, thank you for joining us. Much appreciated, sir. Thanks for having me. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I do want to say something more about that uh, last point that uh, we had to rush just a little bit to our friends in the uh, libertarian community. I think a lot of us um, have libertarian impulses, um, and I think a lot of those libertarian impulses uh, grew and uh, became more embraceable, particularly during the COVID protocols and seeing, you know, what a heavy hand of government can do when it wants to in the name of an emergency um, and how it can not only distort and disrupt the citizens' relationship to their government, but with such a heavy hand, how it can disrupt the citizens' relationship to one another. There's a lot to be said about that. Of course, too, I think it's fair to say you don't have to be a libertarian to know that, and you don't have to be a libertarian to oppose those kinds of policies. We saw plenty of... No, let me restart that sentence. We saw handfuls of brave Democrats. We interviewed a lot of them here. Jennifer Say would be an example. Ann Bauer, the journalist, would be another example. A few here and there who were not libertarians who opposed it. And you saw a lot of us conservatives who are not libertarians oppose it. But the libertarian impulse in that, I think, does deserve its own respect. But when it comes to the issue of the individual's decision in the grip of mental illness or drug addiction or both, which is 99.9% of this population, you pick up or talk to any one of them, you are talking to someone in the grip of psychosis and or drug addiction. That is this population. It is not someone in the grip of not having a house. It is not someone who lost their job last week. It is not someone who inflation beat. It is someone who is... Um, in need of tremendously serious mental help and drug rehabilitation, if not um, some other kind of uh, drug exit, uh, drug use exit strategy. Um, for those that don't think it's anyone else's business to treat them, uh, help them, even if they fight you, even if they don't want your help, and most of them don't. By and large, that is what happens with mental illness and addiction. You usually don't want help. But for those who think it's not, you know, our business to intervene, um, if libertarianism is about anything, to me, at least in my study and understanding of it, which I think is as hopefully as good as anyone else's, um, it is about less regulation, smaller government, fewer taxes, and less obligation from the citizen to the government. Let me tell you something. The Department of Health Services ain't going away. And the uh, community police uh, to protect against uh, violent and property crimes ain't going away. And ambulatory and health care services 
um, emergency department admissions aren't going away. And for those who can't afford any of that, and none of this population can, and that population is growing and those services are needed, how's your libertarianism working out for you? Are you getting taxed less? And are you in need of fewer health and human services or humanitarian services or medical services or treatment services or rehabilitation services or recovery services or ambulatory services or ED admission services? Are you having less or more? And who's paying for it? The libertarian impulse should understand that a healthy citizen and a healthy society go hand in hand and ideally will require less government services. You want to explode Health and Human Services Department at the municipal, state, and federal level? Expand and explode this. Expand and explode drug use and unaddressed and untreated mental health. And you will have more of all of it, plus crime. Plus crime, i.e. need for more police, need for more state and health insurance. More of all government comes with more human self-destruction. And that's what I would wish to communicate to our friends in the libertarian movement. The libertarian impulse is right. The movement needs to rethink what it means to leave these people to live in squalor because it isn't victimless. With so many cracks showing up in the banking system and over $31 trillion in U.S. debt, you say just print more money? Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Argentina, all did that. Defaults happen. But gold has never defaulted. Veteran-owned Midas Gold Group will reinforce your portfolio. Call them to look into safeguarding your money with the stability of gold while you still can. I trust them and own precious metals from the Midas Gold Group. Gold traditionally holds its value when economies fail. Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, now Credit Suisse Bank. Midas Gold Group believes we're in the early stages of a growing crisis, and the Fed's higher interest rates are your cue to create your own bank with real money. Gold. Check them out at MidasGoldGroup.com, or better yet, call them at 480-360-3000, 480-360-3000. Midas Gold Group, gold you can hold, your vault of confidence. Steve is in Tempe. Hello, Steve. How are you? What's going on? Hello, Seth. Good. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thank you, sir. I thought I was in an altered uh, universe uh, earlier when I when I heard Seth Leibson talking about a football coach. I know. And, and, I know. And, and, I know. And correctly naming, correctly naming where where, he, where he's coaching currently. Which I I I outdid myself. I know. I know. Tell you. I know. Mark I know. it on your calendar. Monday, March twentieth, twenty twenty three. I sounded smart about football. I, I was, college football, I, I'm just, wait a pro football teams, mascots. Yes. I. I I know. I'm just. I'm just sitting here stunned. I know. I. What's going on? Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. I'm full of surprises. I surprised myself with that one today. Yeah. I. I know. Well, just. But I have to say, for the record, though, as it relates to Jim Mora, that uh, that is Jim Mora Jr. His father, Jim Mora Senior, is the one that had that famous quote. That that, yes, uh, yes, yes. Junior is at uh, UConn. Is coaching the UConn Huskies, and the daddy was Indiana Colts and Saints. Right. 
Yep. Yeah. Indianapolis Colts and, and the Saints. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I believe you're, you were correct. I believe it was with the Colts when he made, you know. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And Jack stuff. Kemp's roommate from uh, Occidental days. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and uh, that, that's, that's surprising because um, I um, one of my clients uh, played for Jim Mora Sr. at Occidental, and he said, man, that guy was one tough. What year would he have played? Ask him if he knew Kemp. I, well, no, I, I guess I, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have because they were there in college together, right? That's right. Yeah. Oh, they oh, were roommates. Oh, you mean he? You mean he Kemp went, and Mora were college to... roommates, right? 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 Oh, right. okay. Yeah. 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 No, uh, yeah Mora was a is an, was an assistant. Right. 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 He, right. He went on. Right. So this kid, this guy would have been much younger, probably. Yeah. Yeah, my client yeah. was a was a linebacker there. I, th- I think he might have been a defensive coordinator or maybe the linebackers. Coach Occidental Tigers, yeah, if he, I'm not mistaken. I I think you're correct there too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on a streak, baby. I should go buy lottery tickets. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, but yeah, it uh, like I said, Seth. That really that really shocked me. So um, good job. Yeah, good job I'll do. Today. I'll That's, shock uh, you. For, I'll surprise I'm, you from I'm, time I'm, to time. I've got. I was I've, impressed. I've got layers. I, I know. I've got layers. <laughs> yeah, very Renaissance. So yeah. Yes. Oh, there. Yeah. But um. No, no. Uh, interestingly, you were talking about. I mean, I, I, you know, I, your previous guest, you were talking about the, you know, the, the healthcare and the homeless situation and, and uh, the, the shutdown that happened and how that's. And and I, I'm I'm convinced that a lot of those people that you see out on the streets right now are essentially refugees from from what happened back then because. And the thing that's that's so ironic now, and it just gives you know I'm gonna I'm gonna go on my Trump bandwagon here again uh, related to his campaign moving forward. He did call it just like it actually happened. He said, "I don't want to shut down the economy because this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and all of those things that he indicated very." distinctly and one of them was was increased drug use depression um and uh, isolation and, and just a number of different things all, all those things happened and um it's when you when you look at you know i i try to think gosh what would have happened if he had not taken fauci Correct and uh, Burks that other yeah. uh, Burks Burks, De- Deborah Burks yeah, yeah advice right. and decided to just go with his gut yeah. on it yeah. um, where we'd be right now um, I, I I just wish to God he had done that because I know that, that man so much and I, and social work as a result you know. yeah no question uh, well in Seth one thing about Trump that you cannot deny is that man has political instincts. Um, that are unlike anybody else that we've seen in our party in a long time. I he, don't deny knows, I do not deny that. No, I don't. I yeah. agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. And and I just, uh, I know, and it's, uh, it's um, in an answer to your question, you know, can, could this potentially happen again where we have another, you know, disease come in and, and have a shutdown? I, a lot of that's going to depend on who's in, who's, uh, who's in uh, in the Oval Office. You know, time. even if it's interesting thought experiment, Steve, even if it's someone who has now the wisdom of uh, what we went through and would never want to do it again, uh, let's say it's Trump or let's say it's DeSantis or whoever, 
uh, I think they'd probably both handle it probably the same way now, probably. Um, but even if they were in office and something like that came, there would be a substantial part of the population that would be swinging bats at them for not doing it all over again. There, yep. There is a huge population here that still believes in the lockdown, shutdown, mask down mandate mentality. Uh, the control mentality and th- and not only not only believes in it, as, as Bill was pointing out, kind of the Jim Mora point, they're still doing it, even in the light of all yeah, science yeah. and history. They're still doing it. And so yeah, even and if it, you it, had a president that was of that mentality now or had learned the lessons, I think you'd have a big population that would uh, would complain that they're being, uh, you know, uh, they're playing roulette with Russian roulette with our lives. I, I agree. And I think that. What what you say is is correct. There are still people. You, you know, you go out, you go out and about. Um, there are people that I work with that are still wearing masks. Yes, I understand. I do understand. And and there, and I heard somebody say this last week. Um, I, I can't remember what show it was that I was watching. This maybe a show on Fox, but they were saying that there are some people that have made the decision personally that they're going to wear masks the rest of the yes life. i've seen that's that too i've heard it i've heard it too yeah i've heard it i feel sorry uh, that this is happening to them i know i know and it's like and, and you and i both know because we uh i i've talked to you about this previously is that you know even, even the cdc early on knew that these masks were not going to work it was the first um, thing fauci then, said they're not going to help it was it was the first was. thing he said Masks are not CDC going to help, too. based on decades of research. Yeah, and the CDC was saying it too. They had it on their yep. website yep. at the time, which they took down. Yes, um, and but the, it was it was on their website. These masks, I mean, there's certain masks that obviously are ver- are very much uh, effective and a, a, a lot more effective than other masks. And those masks are not the masks that people are wearing. I just loved how NPR did a story on cloth masks not working anymore somewhere around October of 2021 and for two more months was still selling them on their website. I just love this stuff. I mean, Steve, you're right. Uh, Thank you. I got to run. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. Folks, how do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy? We've got banks failing, stock market volatility, possible recession on the rise. And what if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. Your interest is compounded daily. You're paid monthly. There are no fees. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. And there's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. It's a secure, collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. I'd like you to talk to my friends at Y-Refi. They're local. You can visit with them. I know them well. They're trustworthy and honest, and you won't get a sales pitch. They leave that up to Larry Elder and me. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can earn up to 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Just log on to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. That's investyrefi.com, or call them at 888-YREFI-34. Pertaining to um, the call with Steve and 
few other themes around this, this issue of uh, people who want to um, be in uh, shutdown, lockdown, mandate mode forever. Um, Connecting it to the mental health issue, I said I wanted to spend some time on this debate over social media and its effects on our youth and our youth mental health crisis and some of the stuff Jonathan Haidt at NYU has been writing about and showing the dramatic increase of youth mental health uh, decline deficits problem, the increase of the problem is probably the best way to put it. At about the same time, handheld devices and social media was becoming more and more prevalent and common and ubiquitous. There is another aspect to this that is endlessly important, endlessly fascinating and tremendously important. And it's the parents' mental health, too. Consider this. Never really before in modern history have more children been spending more time with their parents, whether it's helicopter parenting or whether it's, uh, you know, over-parenting or whether it's children who want to be um, with their parents or parents who treat their children not as children but as their best friends. Never before has there been so much of that. And you need to connect that, too to the notion that when you think about this COVID stuff and the mentality of these forever mandate types, they themselves having mental health problems, you know, it's not all the kids in social media fault. I, again, I will say it again, and we'll explore it maybe more tomorrow um, when I have more time, but there would, no be, there would be no youth problems if there were not adult problems. We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 